0: Welcome to SME Radio. On this episode of Mid-Market Matters, we're going to talk about something that a lot of people don't even understand, or perhaps don't even know they've got, but it's vitally important to the valuation of your business. And We're joined by Michael Masterton. Michael is the Managing Director, Australia and New Zealand, for EverEdge, and these guys Their whole world is about intellectual property and intangible assets and how you make that more valuable as part of your overall business valuation. Michael, firstly, thank you for joining us.
1: No, thanks for the opportunity, Craig. Really looking forward to it.
0: Mate, I'm going to start with some uh, questions about your background. It's an interesting sort of story how you ended up here. So maybe give us a short version, a bit of history. What have you done before and how did you end up being uh, with EverEdge?
1: Yeah, it was definitely an accident. It just says uh, don't go and have too many dinners with uh, one of your best mates because you might end up working with them. But now look, I, I joined in a startup in the early 90s by absolute accident. Talk about right place, right time, and you know we had the right idea. So um, kind of eight of us took a company um, to about 8,000 people, um, and we ended up creating and dominating an entire industry. So we got bought out by a company called Omnicom, which is a $40 billion US company. And um, at 25, um, I was reporting to New York um, of this publicly listed company as the CEO. And yeah, you know, look, I I joke that I didn't know what I was doing then and uh, I probably still don't now. So from there, yeah, we grew that company throughout Australasia and I've done probably, I don't know, at least 20 scale-up companies, everything from text messaging, food, Um, I've got a large e-commerce company um, and then a a buddy of mine started to talk about, you know, IP and, you know, that was probably um, the start of a very dangerous conversation because we then started to understand, as you alluded to, not just about IP, but what it really is. And, And we've sort of reframed it into, I think, a much better descriptor, which is intangible assets. Um, and the reason we did that is because there's a lot of confusion around what IP is. You know, most people, if you say IP, um, they either be honest and say, I don't know what it is, or they might say, look, it's it's patents and stuff. Um, and they see it very much as a legal right rather than a business asset. Um, and as you alluded to, you know, this is where the value is in pretty much every company that we come across. Um, so, yeah, I hope that gives you a little bit of a background.
0: Absolutely. So you've just said something really interesting. It occurs in every company you come across. So, you know, most people that own businesses sort of don't think about intellectual property and intangible assets much. They're busy building their business, which to them largely consists of, you know, whatever widgets they make or whatever service they provide, customers, et cetera. Um, Tell us a bit more about what it actually means. What's the definition of intangible assets? What does it look like?
1: Yeah, well, look, um, we, we've taken probably the broadest description we can think of, which is it's anything that's a non-physical asset. And I use the word asset deliberately. In other words, it's got the ability to generate value by revenue or, you know, someone wanting to buy, or, buy it or acquire it from you. So it's anything that you can't kick with your toe. Um, and, you know, just to give you an idea of, well, OK, well, how big's this stuff? Well, it's now the biggest asset on the planet. Um, and the way we we measure that is that it's really easy. If you take a listed company because they've got a market cap, you know, which is an arbitrary you know measure of value. Um, if you take the market cap less the fixed assets, the debt, and the cash, the only thing you're left with is intangible assets. And if you look yeah. at the S and P five hundred over the last forty years, nineteen seventy five tangible assets accounted for about 83% of the S&P 500. And the remainder was this thing called goodwill. I'm gonna come back to what good, where goodwill and intangibles come together. Um, Over the 80s and 90s, a couple of things happen, and this will start to unpack where we're heading with the whole description of intangible assets. The first is you see the technology companies coming on stream, you know, the Apples, Microsofts, et cetera, and starting to really scale and grow. Mm -hmm. But what you also see in particular, you know, the S&P is a U.S. example, um, but it applies to pretty much any Western economy, is you saw the U.S. companies offshoring their balance sheet predominantly to low-wage economies like China. And what they did is they didn't just send over the how, they also sent over the what. And, okay, what does that mean? Well, they sent over the plant, the equipment, and the machinery. In other words, the stuff that enables you to make it. But they also taught, you know, in this case, the Chinese, how to make it. And this is why yesterday's supplier is now today's competitor. I'll give you an example, Huawei. So it's not like Huawei woke up one morning and said, hey, we know how to do 5G. They got yeah. taught by Nokia, yeah. Ericsson, AT&T, Bell Labs, etc. But now we see well over 90% of just the S&P 500 is made up of intangible assets. So this is 90% of the value of the S&P that's not recorded on your balance sheet, it's not on your fixed asset register, and it's certainly not um, in the PL. So the definition that we've taken for intangible assets, it really is a way of describing how a company generates margin indoor market share that is ahead of its competitors. In other words, what enables Apple to generate a margin much higher than Samsung, for example, which it does. And Apple is the only one reportedly that makes margin out of the smartphone market. So there's lots of ways of describing it. I mentioned goodwill earlier. That's the traditional accounting approach. It's just kind of a bucket, it's goodwill. But if you go and talk to Warren Buffett, he calls it an economic moat. If I go and talk to a manufacturer mm. or an entrepreneur, they'll call it secret source. It might be competitive edge, unfair advantage. They're all the same thing. They're actually all just the way you're describing how you're gonna generate that margin indoor or market share. And we've just deliberately called it intangible assets. Because you've then got to break it
0: down into what those assets are. Okay. It's an interesting sort of uh, discussion, you know, to have a look at to say, okay, well, what, what is included that's not, ta- you know, tangible is easy. People can see it. Plant equipment, stock, you know, whatever it might be. Um, therefore, we sort of look at it and say, okay, well, what else is there? So some examples that you've mentioned, you know, you talked about Apple, and obviously they've got a brand. Everybody knows the little Apple logo. And when you see it on a product, you've got an expectation of what that actually means in terms of quality and style and design, et cetera. What, um, what I'm interested in is as a, as a business owner, how do I start to a, identify and B, build value into these particular areas?
1: Yeah, look, you've touched on a really interesting point. So one of the one of the analogies we use is imagine if, you know, in front of all of our respective receptions, let's call it pre-COVID, um, you know, you had a 20-ton piece of metal sitting in the middle of your reception area that you had to walk past and you saw every single time you walked through a reception. Let's say that wasn't generating any value. Well, the first thing you'd do is you'd probably ring up the local recycler and see what he'd give you for it. In other words, you would treat it like an asset. And part of the problem is because intangible assets, by their very nature, you don't typically see, um, they're often ignored. So you're absolutely right. The first thing to do is work out, well, what are those assets? And look, you know, it's not an exhaustive list, but you know, these often encapsulate things like brand, which you alluded to, systems, processes, you know, data, um, but even things like networks and relationships. You know, your networks and relationships are probably one of your most key assets. Um, and then go into, you know, depending on what industry you're in, it might be a regulatory approval, in other words, your ability to actually either produce the good or service or sell your good or service, um, you know, your software code. But you know, the one thing that I that everyone normally starts with is things like patents. Um, you know, patents are definitely one of the buckets, but patents are unfortunately overrepresented in terms of their use compared to what their potential value is. And look, that's demonstrated the U.S. Patent Office's own figures indicate that last time I looked, it was about 97.4% of all U.S. granted patents don't generate one single dollar of value. So if you then take, say, those buckets, and, you know, let's, one of my favorites, you know, I'm a big fan of the manufacturing sector. If I walk into any manufacturer, and I alluded before that they often call it secret source, because, you know, they'll say we have no IP because, you know, they don't have patents. But they have a huge amount of IP um, or intangible assets. And their most important intangible asset in most cases for manufacturers is their bill of materials. And it's the one asset that just drives me nuts because, first of all, not does anyone see it as an asset, but it's probably the easiest thing for someone to steal and it's the thing that tells you where to go and find all the other areas of value within the business. You know, it's like a roadmap to where the, the treasure's all buried within the business. So it all really starts with, first of all, acknowledging that the reason people buy your good or service, let's say if you're a manufacturer, it's not because of the machines you have typically, it's normally how you run those machines, what the brand is around it, what the system, the product design is, who your customer relationships is are, your ability to buy, say, your raw goods at a better price than the other guy up the road. And again, that's what enables you to translate that product or good into either margin or market share. So it all starts, the first step we say to every client is just work out what your intangible assets are. Because as I said, I can walk in any company and they can give me a list of their fixed assets, but in over a thousand client engagements, I don't think we've ever been, I think we've had one example where a client even had an arbitrary list of what their intangibles were.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's not something business owners typically think about. I mean, but interestingly, you know, there's no way you wouldn't have a list of what stock you had or what motor vehicles you own if you're driving cars around. You know, that, that is just a given. You'd absolutely have that list of asset register. Um, but intangible assets, as you said, a lot of people don't even know what they've got.
1: Yeah, and look, this is probably where, you know, apologies, Danny, accountants on, on the call, but, you know, look, it really is a fault of, you know, um, the accounting standards because the, the accounting standards were really designed for an industrial age. Um, and probably the last time they were really relevant to most businesses was about 1975. Um, you know, they first of all they weren't designed for intangibles no one really thought that intangibles would end up being this really dominant asset class that it has become so Mm. what we're finding is that you know if you ask all the wrong questions you will always get all the wrong answers and this goes from not just the current structures of recording but you know it even goes so as far as you know intangibles are normally got a big red line through them if you go and talk to your bank or if you're talking to an acquirer of your business and so, you know, excuse the pun, but you've really got to make those intangibles quite tangible. Um, yep. By making those ta- those tangible, those intangible assets, excuse me, tangible, what you start to enable is both people within the business and also external investors and partners start to appreciate what those assets are. And coming back to your, you know, the earlier point that you made is that you can't value what you don't know or you don't understand. And really, it's about, you know, again, creating a list of your intangible assets and then starting to understand what the risks are around those intangibles.
0: Okay, so I'm interested to hear more about that. You know, how do you identify and leverage them to build a competitive edge is sort of one question that we we should be talking about. How do we do that? And then we might move on to talk about the risk thing that you just brought up.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the the, the starting point is just... Look at what ultimately is driving that marginal market share in your business. In other words, you know, start from start from where you're already at, and you know, one of the examples, I just, you know, it's a fairly simple one, but you know, I can go and buy a T-shirt in Pakistan for a dollar. You sew on a Prada label, and that T-shirt is now magically worth, let's call it, two hundred dollars. Yeah, you don't see $199 of brand value showing up in the P&L. In fact, if you look at a traditional set of accounts, you can't really see that it's the brand doing the heavy lifting. And in no. particular, if that brand has accreted over time. So, you know, if you think about Coca-Cola, you know, Coca-Cola, the brand started off being worth zero, yet it's now one of the most you know valuable brands on the planet. Um, yet you won't see that value reflected in their accounts. And that's because you you're not, you're not able to reflect it in the accounts. Yet the crazy bit is if I go and acquire the Coca-Cola brand, if I buy their brand, I can then bring it onto my balance sheet. And it's one of those, those strange um, issues around um, both PLs and and balance sheets is how you ascribe assets. And one of the examples we like to use is um, from Professor Baruch Larev, who wrote The End of Accounting. Um, he's the professor at New York State University. And Baruch talks about two examples. And both company A and company B want to produce product X. Okay, it doesn't matter what product X, it's just, it's the outcome. Company A goes and develops through internal R&D product X by spending $10 million to do so. Company B goes and acquires $10 million of intangible assets to again be able to produce product X. Now, they've both gone about you know, creating product X in different ways, but they've achieved the same mm. outcome. Yet here's the crazy bit. On company A, it's going to show as an expense in their PL, which will depress their earnings. However, company B is it's going to show as an asset on the balance sheet, which enhances the company value. So from an investment perspective, company A looks like it's underperforming to B, but as we all know, it's not. They've just gone about it different ways. So this is one of the ways that the accounting standards can kind of perverse how you understand that value. But it all starts with understanding, first of all,
0: what those assets are. Okay, so let's come back to, you mentioned before the risks around intangible assets. What are those key risks and and how do we minimize them?
1: Yeah, look, the the top five risks that we pretty much come across in any company that we deal with, Um, and yeah, remember, we've worked with well over a thousand clients um, throughout Australasia. Number one by long shot is what we call, you know, leakage or deliberate theft of critical confidential information. And I'm going to come back to this one in a second. Mm-hmm. The second is that most companies can't even prove they own their assets. And it's what we call clear chain of title. And if you think about it, a lot of companies start off, you know, two or three people, if we take a software company, you know, they're all working for beer and pizza. They run out of beer and pizza. One goes to get a job. New person joins. Who owns the code base? In other words, how do you prove who contributed what? And in particular at an early stage, because most companies can't afford good advice. Um, In fact, they're they're often relying on bad advice or free advice. Number three is around open source. So open source accounts for over 80% of all code. Um, And open source has three really inherent risks. The first is who even owns the code? The second thing is what are the license terms of that code? And the fourth, on oh, the third is, you know, it's the easiest way to get a backdoor into the code base. The fourth biggest risk is well over half, 50% of the companies we deal with don't own their brand in the way that they think they do. And this wow. can go from no ownership or only owning it in a very weird way. Um, and I'll give you an example. So walk into a ASX 100 company and the CEO tells me that they're spending $1.5 million every month to build a brand and their strategy is that they're going to become the dominant player in Australia and they're going to then use that to springboard into the US. And literally in the first 10 minutes, one of my team leans across and says they don't own their brand. Like, what do you mean? And the thing is, there's two elements of a brand. There's what's called the word mark, if we use the word McDonald's, yeah, the yep. word McDonald's. The second is the device mark, the logo, the visual representation of the logo. Now, the word marks- The golden in the
0: McDonald's case.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And word marks start off being where the value is and they, over time, you know, if you're McDonald's, it ends up becoming the golden arches. Yep. <coughs> Pardon me, but in this company's case, um, unfortunately, they only owned the logo in Australia. And what that means at a practical level, is that as long as I don't exactly copy their logo, I can still call my company their name. I've just got to use a different logo. But what was worse is their major competitor had already registered the word mark and the device mark in the US. And what that practically meant is that this company could never expand into the US using their own brand. So they'd spent $36 million building a brand they could never own. Okay, well, how relevant is this? Well, you might notice that Afterpay is not called Afterpay in the UK. Afterpay had, couldn't get their brand in the UK. They had to rename themselves Clearpay. Um, and in fairness, if they had have got some early advice, they could have actually protected their brand Afterpay. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't get the right advice. Um, and so therefore, weren't able to build that asset, which, you know, again, had, had a cost to them. And the mm. fifth issue is if you go anywhere near the U.S., it's not if you'll be sued, it's when you'll be sued. Um, and the thing is that, you know, in the U.S., you know, in particular patent infringement, things like that, it's just a, a way of doing business in the U.S. But I want to come back to that first risk that I talked about, which is where companies leak. Yep. And they normally leak through either their customers by telling them stuff they shouldn't, their suppliers, again, by telling them stuff they shouldn't, or when their employees leave and in particular often join a competitor. So one of the, the areas that people might go, well, okay, again, how does this relate? Is that this is, everyone's heard all the hyperbole around you know cyber. Yeah, you know, We've got everyone from the prime minister down talking about cyber, cyber, cyber. Now, like most things, you've got to define what you're talking about to have a meaningful conversation. And what they're really talking about is it is theft or leakage of you know, confidential information. But the one that they're talking about is what we call the external unknowns. So that's, you know, your classic hacker. The bit they're not really talking about enough is what we call industrial espionage. And the one thing I can tell you from experience, we would deal with probably one, one client a week who's either found or suspects someone trying to steal, and in particular, not their credit card information because, you know, that's often insured, who cares? Um, yep. But key industrial designs, you know, their plans for their next iteration of their product or their service, or it might be their pricing information, things like that. Um, so yeah. that's the other part of that. And the second element is what we call the external knowns. Now, this is your contractors, suppliers, partners, etc. And again, I'll give you a tangible example. I would say that probably well over 50% of the people listening to this would work with an external IT provider. Here's the bit you might not realize, your external IT provider has full admin rights to your system in nearly every case we've ever come across. So the easiest way to often get your information is not by trying to get into you and your systems, which let's say they're really well protected, but they'll go in through the weakest link. And quite often we find that's the external IT provider. The third element of risk around cyber or what I really prefer to call digital asset security is what we call the internal really well-known threats. You might go, hang on, what's that? And it's actually people like your employees. And the other one that's quite surprising is your company directors. So I'll give you two examples. So we had a client recently where one of their employees had actually been compromised by a, let's just call them a foreign party. Everyone can probably guess who I'm talking about. Um, yep. where they were essentially coerced to steal really valuable industrial secrets from their employer and share them. And we've seen lots of public cases of Tesla, mm. for example, suing Tata, you know, the large Indian firm who sent in industrial spies to steal information. The other one of directors, we, we probably have a case maybe once every six months where we end up discovering that the leakage is actually happening at board level. And it's, all, it's nearly always inadvertent where again, no one has explained to that company director, who by the way, is often not under a confidentiality agreement or an NDA, um, not only that they're being given access to really you know, valuable confidential information, intangible assets, but also what the consequences of sharing it are with those parties. And quite often they're sharing it with another party who's again inadvertently sharing with another party yeah, and yeah. guess what's often a competitor. So they're kind of probably the five big ones that we see.
0: It's an interesting model, isn't it? Because you wouldn't think about, I mean, we've got an external IT firm we've been using for 10 years, and I love them. They do a great job for us, but I'm hoping they've got some pretty robust systems around it because they have got logins to everything. And as you said, admin rights, the whole lot. So it's certainly something to think about. Yeah. Um, look, in terms of, gone.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say, Craig, one of the things that I would do, because you know, I always like to go, okay, now I know what the problem is, but what's the solution? And look, one of the things that I would recommend, and we do, we recommend every company we work with does, gets an external security review. And I'm not talking about your doors and windows. And by the way, this is not an IT function. You know, the sort of people who do this work are not the guys that will come around and install windows and set up your new laptop. You know, they're kind of what's called white hackers. And these guys will try and break into your systems. They'll test how good, bad or indifferent they are. And you know, to me, it's it's the cheapest form of insurance you will find. Um, it's not expensive. They're normally former spies. Um, and in fact, they're normally not in the yellow pages. Um, but you <laughs> certainly want to find out that you've got a problem, you know, before you don't have a company.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about the upside. You've talked about some of the risks and some of the potential problems. Um, but I'm interested to ask you first, before we get into that sort of, you know, how do we really make this work? Valuation, you know, we we value companies all the time, but we value them, you know, based on traditional financial analysis and so on. You're talking about something completely different where, you know, we've just seen Apple, for example, has now hit a market cap of, you know, $2 trillion, which is that many zeros, you can't count them. Um, And that's largely based on their intangible assets. So how do you you value these assets? You know, what, what do you go about doing there to sort of assess how valuable a particular intangible asset might be?
1: Yeah, look, Apple's an interesting example. I think last time I looked, intangibles account for it's well over 97, 98% of the value of the company. Um, So, you know, but, you know, the other one, which is probably even more famous in a way is Instagram. Um, And I'll use this as an example before I explain our approach. So Instagram, for those of you who don't know, when they got bought by Facebook, um, had zero dollars in revenue. So that, That rules out any form of DCF, okay? So, okay, that model goes out or Monte Carlo. So, well, we're in a bit of trouble here now from from a traditional accounting approach. And they only had 12 staff and they had (laughs) 250,000 in fixed assets. Yet Facebook valued them at a billion dollars. And you can't go, hang on, that's just crazy. You know, that was not a good idea. But history has shown that Instagram was actually worth about $7 Now, the reason it was worth that is not what it was worth. That wasn't they weren't worth that much to you or I Craig because we couldn't do anything with Instagram, but it was worth that to Facebook because if Facebook didn't buy it and it's now come out um, in his expert testimony where Zuckerberg said, you know, we knew that Yahoo or Microsoft would buy Instagram. So in other words, it's not just what it's worth to you, it's what it's worth to someone else. And this sort of leads into the, the classic approach to valuation. And it's not surprising we see, you know, the standard uh, valuation number of four times EBITDA. Um, yep. And, you know, really what that's doing is it's taking the the existing fixed assets in cash and the cash flow that that throws off, and it's kind of like writing a 1980s BMX. You've just got to pedal faster to get a better outcome. The only way you can get above those standard multipliers is you've got to identify what the strategic value is. In other words, what the intangible assets are. And not just understand them but be able to explain them not just what they're worth to you but what they're worth to someone else and this is how you kind of you get those exponential growth rates like what instagram did Mm -hmm. but the other thing too is that intangible assets can often destroy value i talked about before that that company not owning its brand you know or a company um not having clear chain of title you know when you're in due diligence and let's say it's someone like us acting on behalf of the investor or the buyer These are all the ways we're gonna leverage value down because the strength or weakness of your intangible assets has a direct impact on your value. So then if we take how we approach valuation, we sort of look at it from three different perspectives. We still look at the numbers. You You can't ignore the numbers. Um, but we'll, we'll look at either, and we will look, we will always look at the traditional approach, DCFs, et cetera, but we'll also look at what the asset buildup is. In other words, what are each of those individual intangible assets potentially worth, but also then combined? The second is what is the quality of the asset? In other words, does the client own its brand? You know, do they have clear chain of title? You know, if they've got a patent, how good, bad, or indifferent is that patent? In other words, how easy or hard is it for me to break that IP? And then the third is, what's the contextual? In other words, who could this be worth a lot of money to? And then what you've got to do is triangulate all three of those to come up with something that you can explain to another party.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay. So that that gives us a pretty good guide. What I'm interested in now is, how do I go about it? I'm the CEO of a mid-market company. I've, I think I've got some intangible assets. You know, my brand's well-known or I've got some secret sauce or magic recipe or whatever it might be how do I then make that work for me? How do I achieve that strong you know, valuation that I can rely on when it comes time to, to sell it or to, to list it or whatever I'm going to do?
1: Yeah, look, and, and I think it's a fair comment that probably, I'd say probably 80 to 90% of the, the inquiries we get are around valuation. And the first question I always say to people is why are you doing a valuation? And normally it's curiosity or there, there might be something else. But the only time I personally would say to a client to do a valuation is when there's a capital event. Typically, yeah. sort of three to six months out. Um, and the reason I say that is that intangible asset valuations are only ever accurate at a moment in time. And if you think about, yeah, we're dealing with some yeah. companies that have got some solutions to COVID at the moment. Now, those companies, in fairness, were not worth a lot, let's say, 12 months ago. Today, they're worth a hell of a lot. Um, mm. We've seen this reflected in public markets. So, in other words, nothing's really changed on their product or service. What has changed is their market opportunity. Um So, okay, if valuation is something, you know, if there's no immediate capital event, what should I do? And, you know, one of my favourite sayings is, you know, the best time to plant a fruit tree was 25 years ago. The second best time is today. And so then it comes down to, okay, well, how do I build the value of those assets and more importantly, reduce the risks so that when I come to a capital event, either an exit, divestment, IPO, sale of my business, that I'm not leaving that money on the table? And... You know, we've designed a program that we've now put, I don't know, three or five hundred companies through that does exactly this. You know, we work with our clients to help them understand first of all what their assets are. Then we help them reduce, identify and then reduce the risks. The third is then identifying where are the areas of value that aren't being capitalised? But what we're doing all along the way is we're also educating them about this stuff, and not just the owner or the or the chair or the board, but in particular anyone who's strategically involved in the business. Um. And look, you know, not sort of singing our own trumpet. We're you know we've recently worked with you know companies like Rhino Rack, who I'm sure lots of people will know. Um. And you know, it was a sort of. A great moment when you have, you know, and this is a phenomenally successful um, international company owned by, you know, a single person in Australia. Um, you know, when, when the entire management team, you've literally trained, you know, transformed our business. We now see our business is not really a manufacturer. We're a brand and we've got systems and processes and, you know, we help them mitigate some risks. But that all leads to value. Um, mm, mm. And one thing I can tell you is that people will not pay for what they can steal. And that that comes down to due diligence or industrial espionage, etc. So, all I'd say is, you know, you ne- no one ever wants to go to war, but you always want to be prepared for war. And I'd say the same thing about, you know, getting your business ready for sale is you. You never know when an opportunity might come along, either from an acquisition perspective, or it also might be a market opportunity.
0: Fantastic, mate. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm interested in asking you the number one tip. For mid-market business owners to be successful in your area, what's the number one thing they should do? No pressure. No,
1: no I was going to say you didn't. You didn't give me a heads up about this. Look, the, the best advice, and, and look, this is very much from a personal experience, is don't hire the people that know the things you do. Hire the people that know the things you don't.
0: That and, is a great tip.
1: Yeah, and look, I'd, I'd say that that's reflected. You know, for those of you who have got boards. Um, you know, this is probably another whole podcast, but you know, don't go and put your classic accountants and lawyers on your board. Don't hire the people that actually know the stuff you do. You really want to set your board or your advisors, you know, people like Craig, for example. I mean, Craig knows stuff I don't. That's why you know we we introduce Craig to clients because um, if they, if I knew it, then we wouldn't need Craig, and vice versa. So, and also to try and surround yourself not just internally but externally with what I call a culture of dissonance. In other words, where people are not necessarily always agreeing with you because you're the boss or the owner, mm. but actually, you know, they've got the you've got the culture and the ability to disagree and to challenge because really that's what drives innovation. Um, yeah. and at the end of the day, if you're doing what you did yesterday, tomorrow, your your chance of growth is not very good. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Mate, how do people get in touch with you, Michael? Um, if they're interested in finding out more or perhaps they've got a capital event coming up and need to think about the value of their intangible assets, how do people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, look, the best thing to do is either ring our Sydney office um, or, you know, drop me an email, michael at everedgeglobal.com. Um, look, and the thing is, we don't charge anyone for the first hour. And if we can't help you, as, as people who have rung us and, you know, we, we've sent them to people like Craig or, or other people in the ecosystem. Yeah, you know, we just want to see you make money from your idea. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's why we're all in business. And, you know, I think it's also being about being honest with each other about where we can and where we can't help. So, look, happy to have a, a chat or a coffee, um, you know, I can assure you I'll probably learn learn more about uh, how business works than, than maybe you will. So I'll enjoy it as much as you do.
0: Fantastic, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. It's been really interesting information.
1: No, hey, look, Craig, thank you for the opportunity. And, um, yeah, look, at the end of the day, you know, this is, you know, if we want to transform Australia into a high-performing economy, um, you know, to take on, you know, the new threats like China and the existing competitors like the US and Europe, we've got to get better at managing our intangibles. And, you know, this is why countries like Singapore have announced they want to become the lead intangible asset economy on the planet. It's why China has announced they're moving from a manufacturing economy to an innovation economy, um, so look, we've got a great opportunity, and the one thing I can tell you um, is not all the smart people can ever work for you. Um, and so the job is, you know, hopefully, you know, listening to things like this and, and learning from people like myself and Craig, who have probably made the
0: mistakes, um, so that you don't have to make them. Fantastic, mate! Thanks for coming along today, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Sounds good. Cheers, Craig. Thanks for listening to Mid Market Matters. I hope you found this episode helpful and informative for your business. To find out more, go to midmarketmatters.com.au. And to download other episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.